Welcome to Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault in Springfield, Illinois. On April 22, 2020, Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen was murdered, allegedly by Army Specialist Aaron Robinson, who then took his own life when he was confronted by area police. Prior to her murder, the 20-year-old had confided to her family that she had been sexually harassed by a sergeant, but had not reported it for fear of retaliation. Vanessa's death and high-profile investigation prompted an independent review, which resulted in 14 leaders at Fort Hood being relieved at their post or suspended. The chairman of that independent review panel went on to tell Congress that the base leadership at Fort Hood was focused on military readiness and completely and utterly neglected the Sexual Assault Prevention Program, or SHARP as it is known. He also reported lower-level unit commanders didn't encourage service members to report assaults and in many cases were shaming victims or were actually the perpetrators themselves. Sexual violence in the military is nothing new and, in fact, has been a growing problem with reports increasing every year since 2006. When Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin first took office in January of this year, his first directive was to order his senior leaders to review their sexual assault programs. He then created an independent panel to review the issue and make recommendations. The first recommendation from that panel is that decisions to prosecute service members for sexual assault be made by independent authorities, not commanders. Service leaders now have about 30 days to review that recommendation and to provide their own ideas and input. So here we are with a growing issue and not much visible progress being made. To further discuss the issue of sexual violence within the military is Terry Sparnelson. Terry was a program coordinator, sexual trauma counselor from 1993 to 95 at the VA Medical Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. She was a principal investigator in a five-year study assessment of sexual trauma in U.S. military, which spanned from 97 to 2002. She was also a subject matter expert and consultant for the Department of Defense Leadership Team, SAPRO, was on the Care for Victims of Sexual Assault Confidentiality Subcommittee and Victim Advocacy Advisory Group 2004 and 2005, also Department of Defense Sexual Assault Advocate Certification Program in 2012-13. to 13. Additionally, Terry has written four books, including 2015's For the Love of Country, Confronting Rape and Sexual Harassment in the U.S. Military, peer-reviewed journal articles, and 21 booklets distributed nationally in English, Spanish, and even Braille. We should also note that Terry herself is a military veteran of the U.S. Army, serving in behavioral sciences, and was twice awarded the Army Commendation Medal with First Oak Leaf Cluster for Meritorious Service. First, Terry, uh, welcome and thank you for your service. And uh, let's first talk about that five-year study you were part of on uh, sexual trauma in the military. Can you describe what the study was and what the findings were? Absolutely. And first, I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this important topic and this long-standing topic as we're going to address further. So my study, which was conducted from 1997 to 2002, was a five-year international study on sexual assault and sexual harassment in the U.S. military. So what I did is I really wanted to hear from survivors because it occurred to me at that time even, we were hearing a lot from the Secretary of Defense, from the Pentagon, from media sources about sexual assault and particular at that time it was rape against military recruits at training stations. What were we hearing from the survivors? What their perspectives and experiences were? So the focus of my research was on the survivors' voices and experiences what happened to them, and not so much the details of sexual assault or sexual harassment, as what happened in the aftermath when they thought about reporting or if they did report. 
So I wanted to know what worked for them, what didn't work, what was helpful, what wasn't helpful. And I compiled their experiences, their voices, uh, along with data from the Pentagon, from other sources, and published that in the book, The Love of Country, Confronting Rape and Sexual Harassment in the U.S. Military. Basis is on survivor feedback. So uh, formal reports of sexual assaults have continued to rise since 2006. There was a 13% jump in 2018, a 3% jump in 2019, and even last year in 2020 when almost everything was locked down, there was still a 1% increase in the total number of reported assaults, bringing that number close to about 8,000. Now, some claim seeing these increasing numbers is actually a good thing, as it implies more survivors are coming forward. However, others are saying, well, the percentage of survivors coming forward really hasn't changed, and the increase in reports reflects a problem that continues to escalate. Based on your study and your experiences, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a good point, and I think that there's probably a little bit of both. Probably are seeing more people coming forward. Uh, but we're also seeing some changes because of changes in the policies, changes in numbers, and also changes in climate and culture in some units. One of the outstanding findings from my research was that survivors did not report or did not feel comfortable reporting if they thought there might be retaliation, if they feared it would have an impact on their career, if they felt that maybe others would shame them or blame them. And I think that's still true today. So what we found is that it's the command climate and culture. Commanders sense that climate in terms of whether or not the victim feels safe coming forward and making a report. They don't feel it's safe in their unit to come forward, as we've seen, unfortunately, at Fort Hood. Um, and many of them won't. They will keep it to themselves, or they may go off base to a civilian rate crisis program. So I think what we're seeing in the military is an increase in some really great policies and programs. But they're not always being implemented. And sometimes that falls on the commander's shoulders. And if that's the case, it depends on the commander, whether or not they're behind the SHARP program, the SAPRA program, the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Program, whether or not they carry their own biases about people who are sexually assaulted, whether or not they believe the victim. So if you're in a unit where a commander maybe doesn't stand behind the program, where they have some of their own biases, and chances are you're going to find less reporting and fewer survivors who are coming forward. And that includes male survivors as well as persons who are LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. Now, why do you think the military has struggled so much with dealing with sexual violence? Are there unique aspects within the military that makes the problem more difficult than it would be in civilian life? Yes. Absolutely. Well, first of all, the military, of course, has people who are from our society and our culture, and we've still got problems with rape and sexual harassment in our uh, culture. You don't have to look too far to find media accounts of ongoing harassment and sexual assault that's happening at all types of settings. In the military, there may be some other challenges. First of all, and foremost, it's a male-dominated culture. And what that means is that more often than not, men are in power and have control. So there's fewer women who are in power or leadership positions. Secondly, the very nature and culture of the military is based on uh, uh, command, the command climate as well as reporting uh, and following orders, right? So with that structure, that rank structure, you're a private, lower-level military person. If someone is higher level than you, let's say they're a sergeant, you have to 
follow their orders. And I actually had one survivor tell me in the research study that it was her captain, she was a driver for, uh, she had to drive him to various locations. I just ordered her to take him to a remote location, and that was where he sexually assaulted her. She said she didn't feel like she could say no to his order because that would be against the rules. So there's that, as well as the fact that there are who are coming from our own culture who carry with them, again, their own biases and stereotypes about women and whether or not women, how women should be treated or how others should be treated. And so we see that in the military as well as in our society. Now, some would say the issue of sexual violence in the military is ultimately a lack of accountability. There is a fairly recent example that involves Army Sergeant Taylor Ann Knuven, who was assaulted by a non-commissioned officer. She filed an unrestricted port, and then the alleged perpetrator's company commander came forward and said she had been assaulted by him as well. Ultimately, an Article 15 fact-finding investigation backed up their complaints. The NCO was issued a letter of reprimand from a general, but a three-member Army administrative board still opted to keep him in the service. The story is not unique either. So how can the military expect to prevent sexual violence when they're really not doing much to hold perpetrators accountable? That's a really good question. I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, and that is, that survivors will only come forward if they feel like they're going to be believed or there's a culture that shows that. So in this particular case, what happened was basically said, no, we want to keep this person. And one of the findings that I realized in my research and also in my years of work with survivors is they found that commanders would say, oh, he was a good soldier or he's a good soldier or he's done a good job and therefore we don't want to lose him. Uh, rather than looking at the fact that this person committed a sexual assault. And with that, they were willing to accept that the person accepted, committed a sexual assault, rather than let go of someone who may have served a vital part of the mission. There was something you said earlier, and I want to come back to it, because I think it's really important, and that addresses the issues that happened around uh, Vanessa Cummings' death and the, also the, the issues of command climate. I, I just... I can't even begin to tell you how important it is to look at that. At Fort Hood, because they were focused on military readiness. And with that, sometimes they ignored some of the sexual assault prevention and response policies. Because they put military readiness first. So that's important. We want to have a military that focuses on readiness. But guess what? If you have people in your command who are sexually assaulting each other, that's going to impact military readiness. That's going to impact whether or not people feel like they can do their job, whether they can trust their peers, whether they can trust their commanders. So, in fact, it's contradictory to me that they said they were focusing on military readiness when, in fact, if you have sexual assault happening in your unit, it's impacting military readiness. So, going back to your question, though, is how, in terms of keeping offenders accountable and ensuring that they're kept accountable, It is a very critical issue because when someone sees that offenders are not kept accountable, they're less likely to come forward, they're less likely to go through the process of reporting. One of the aspects that's happening now, and it's actually been in process for well over a decade now, is looking at taking commanders out of that decision-making and making it someone who's outside of command, even a civilian, who might have oversight on these cases. Because right now, as commanders have the authority to make these decisions, 
it means oftentimes that the offenders are not held accountable. Well, and I would think also if you have to follow that chain of command that you run into issues because, you know, I'm a maybe a lower ranking female uh, member of the military and someone over me assaults me. But then if I go to his commander, then it might make the entire unit look bad. And then the commander really doesn't want that. So he's going to be more likely to try and cover it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. That happens. Uh, indeed. Whereas if the commander is taken out of that role of having to make that decision, it also takes away that it's a dual obligation of the commander, right? They want to make sure that their unit is safe. They want to address military readiness. But then at the same time, uh, how does that impact on them when they have someone in their unit who has committed these offenses? We are speaking with Terry Spar Nelson, author of For Love of Country, Confronting Rape and Sexual Harassment in the U.S. Military. Now, the bipartisan I Am Vanessa Guillen Act was introduced last September and, after failing to be voted on last fall, was reintroduced back on May 13th with several recommendations for improving sexual violence prevention. I think one of the provisions people might find surprising is that it would make sexual harassment a punishable crime under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And I think the reason that is surprising, at least to me, is that sexual harassment currently isn't a punishable crime. And yet, according to statistics from the 2016 to 2020 Department of Defense SAPRA reports, the DOD concluded that sexual harassment is a leading factor affecting the unit climate on sexual assault and acknowledged that one in five women who experienced sexual harassment were also sexually assaulted. So on on one hand, it seems the military has evidence of a cause-effect relationship, at least 20% of the time, yet they've never have addressed the issue directly. Why do you think harassment has been treated so indifferently? Number one, I think there's really a lack of understanding um, that people don't necessarily understand the differences or how traumatic sexual harassment can be. Sometimes it's kind of put in a different category, like it's not as important. But in fact, when we look at sexual trauma, there's a continuum of sexual trauma, which may start out with sexual harassment. It may start out with someone treating someone disrespectfully, saying things to them, maybe even touching them, which crosses that line between sexual assault and sexual harassment, depending on whether or not they're in their chain of command or a supervisor uh, and so on. So with that, if we look at sexual harassment as just one part of that continuum that could lead up to sexual assault and rape, then we do consider it as a serious offense. And we do need to look at it in terms of how it affects the climate, the culture, military readiness, and how we treat each other. We treat each other with respect. You know, one of the things I pointed out in my book was that going back many, many years, secretaries of defense have said, no tolerance, zero tolerance. We will not have any tolerance for sexual assault in our military. Well, in fact, even though you say it, if it still keeps going on, then there is a tolerance for sexual harassment and sexual assault in the military. So one of the ways to address that is to acknowledge sexual assault and sexual harassment with the significance it has on the victims. Now, Vanessa Gian's family said that she had been experiencing sexual harassment but was afraid of retaliation, and that really does seem to be uh, a justified fear. Again, going back to that DOD SAPRA report, retaliation seems to be the norm. 
64% of women who reported a sexual assault said they faced retaliation. And of those who experienced it, 66% of the alleged uh, are alleged that retaliators were in the reporter's chain of command. So knowing that harassment can escalate into assault and knowing that harassment doesn't get reported because of this fear of retaliation, you know, some have recommended that Congress update a burden of proof standard for military whistleblowers. Currently, military victims must show by a preponderance of the evidence that the unfavorable action would not have been taken if they hadn't have reported the sexual assault or harassment. And some experts say that's an almost impossible task. Do you think that change in the burden of proof would be effective in helping with the prevention efforts? I think that whatever we can do to demonstrate that we take these issues, sexual harassment and sexual assault seriously, is an important step forward. And the more that we minimize it or disregard it or don't treat it as something that is traumatic for the victims, harmful for the unit, harmful for mission readiness, harmful for the military, the more that we don't, that we are, are absent in, in treating it uh, in, a, in a way that says, oh, this is important, we do need to address it, um, then the more we're doing injustice to the issue, to the people who are affected. And yes, I think that we need to tighten the military laws and regulations responding to sexual assault. Now, another big difference between civilian life and military life is that in the civilian world, if someone reports a sexual assault, they have a certain amount of immunity for lesser crimes. So for example, a 20-year-old reports an assault that happened while she was drinking. As a civilian, she wouldn't face necessarily underage drinking charges, but in the military where underage drinking is an offense under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, there are no such protections. Uh, do you think, again, providing this immunity for lesser issues helps survivors come forward? Absolutely. And there actually is a policy. It's called the Collateral Misconduct Policy. And it was put into effect in 2005 with the original sexual assault prevention response policy that DOD developed. So the collateral misconduct policy indicates that if you are engaged in other activities that might be considered a violation of UCMJ, Uniform Code of Military Justice, commanders are supposed to take that into consideration when someone makes a report of a sexual assault. Now, that doesn't mean that they have immunity, but what they have done is kind of like the groundwork to say, hey, we really do want to put sexual assault as a priority. If you've been underage drinking, if you've been fraternizing, or involved in other activities that might have been in violation of UCMJ. So yes, I think, again, whatever we can do to make it easier for survivors to come forward and report, then that would be better for all. Now, it was just recently announced that the Army is restructuring Criminal Investigations Command, or CID, by creating far more civilian participation. Can you describe the changes and how they may help curb sexual violence in the military? Certainly. Uh, again, there's been discussion around civilian oversight for many years, well over a decade. And civilian oversight and CID will make a huge difference. Again, for those survivors who feel like maybe telling or reporting within their system might not be effective for them. And so knowing that there's an outside source, uh, whether that be an ombudsman, someone in CID, whether that be someone that they can turn to who's not associated with the military, may allow survivors another opportunity to come forward and feel like they're really going to be heard and hopefully believed. And I want to also state that there have been some 
excellent changes in policy and in programming over the past several years, including the development of having special victims counsel, special legal victims counsel available to survivors. So if the survivor has made a report, then that survivor has the opportunity to speak with legal counsel, and that person is there to represent and to advocate on behalf of the victim. So that's something that's happened, again, within the past decade, and that's been a bonus to give victims an added ally and added advocate in the system. Now, uh, we've talked a lot about, kind of in a roundabout way, SHARP and prevention programs. Can you really describe what military sexual violence prevention strategy is? I mean, just as, as a whole, is it different than some of the preventative measures that we see in the civilian world? Like, w- we really focus on like things like bystander intervention. Are you seeing a lot of those kind of same strategies being used in military prevention efforts as well? Those are good questions. And I just want to be clear that um, in terms of my expertise, it's more on intervention and working with victims and some of the policy issues, whereas prevention is an area, again, that requires so much time and attention. The military has using bystander intervention, by the way, and they're looking at some other, uh, some other options as well. I want to just give you an example of what can happen when the military really takes charge. Go back to the 1970s, which can take you back several years here. But in the 1970s, when the military was facing issues around racial harassment and bias and discrimination, DOD and the military said, okay, we're going to take charge of this and we're going to address this issue. And they went full on in terms of addressing the issues of racial harassment and discrimination. And significant changes were made, including military having a micro-focus on this issue. For example, persons of color were promoted to leadership positions, uh, which, again, when you see someone who looks like you and they're in a leadership position, it makes a difference. Same with women. When you see more women in leadership positions, it makes a difference. It says a lot. My point is, come around the circle here, and that is that when the military knew they needed to address that issue of racial harassment, they zeroed in on it and they addressed it. Now, do they still have issues? Absolutely. But they took charge. And the military has a way of jumping ahead of what we can do or what we've done in civilian sectors. They could do that with sexual assault, too. And they started that in 2005 when DOD developed the sexual assault uh, prevention and response efforts and the policies. The problem is, quite frankly, the ball got dropped. Because then what happened is they had these great policies in place, but there was no accountability for commanders or for others to make sure that they were followed. Policies are good, they're there, but if people aren't following them, if they're not implementing them, then it backfires. So if the military spends as much effort on paying attention to sexual assault and sexual harassment, as a military readiness issue, as something that is affecting at least 20% of their service members, then I think we'd see some significant difference. So in terms of prevention, one of the ways to do that is take it seriously from the top down. If you have someone who's in top position, doesn't matter if they're a general, doesn't matter if they're a commander, if they are not doing their job, they're not following the policy, or they themselves are an offender, deal with it and make sure that others know it will not be tolerated. So if you say zero tolerance, implement zero tolerance. That's a pretty huge effort in terms of prevention. 
there are other strategies that are coming up uh, that we can talk more about if you want to. But I think that the military has the opportunity to make a difference and to do great work in this arena. I know one of the complaints, because uh, I actually talked with uh, Sergeant Knuven, uh about her experience, and one of the things that she said is that with the SHARP program, it's just like this huge presentation. It's a PowerPoint presentation. It's given to a huge number of people so they can kind of check off the, yes, we did sexual harassment prevention training. And it requires buy-in. And she said in, in her 10 years in the military, she's seen maybe four different slides. I mean, they're all, it's all the same over and over and over. So uh, back in February, Staff Sergeant Shamika Dudley presented an idea to the 18th Airborne Corps Dragon Layer event, which is kind of like their version of Shark Tank. And she pitched the idea of using virtual reality as a training goal for sexual harassment and violence prevention. She said that she had seen them use that for uh, soldiers and officers dealing with PTSD issues. And that would replace what she also is calling stale PowerPoint presentations that would require buy-in from the attendee. So you're not just sitting there on your phone going, oh God, is this over yet? Do you think this could be an effective approach? Again, knowing that prevention isn't necessarily your, your field of expertise, but just in your experience in working with the military, do you think this could be effective? Um, absolutely. I think there's lots of potential here. Number one is because it's going to pique people's attention, right? So the more that we can engage audiences, right? What's the best form of, of education is when you have participation, you have engagement. It's not death by PowerPoint. Totally agree with that. Um, I think the cautionary statement I would make here is that we know there's going to be survivors in the room. There's going to be men, women, persons with LGBTQ background. Persons who have experienced sexual assault and sexual harassment will be in the room and they may be triggered or they may feel an effect of that type of an experience, that type of training. They may not feel comfortable coming forward and saying, hey, I'm going to opt out of this training because this happened to me, right? So if we're looking at about 20% of the people in the room have had some type of effect from sexual assault or sexual harassment. Uh, we have to be cautioned about how do we present that training. And that's not just that's not just virtual reality training, but any type of training, knowing that there are people in the room who have that experience. So that would be one concern that I would have. And, and trying to figure out how do you allow people to opt out? And then what happens if people opt out? Do they get an ultimate training? I'm not sure. So I need to know more details about how they are potentially implementing this. I also think that it's really important to include aspects around alcohol uh, and other drug use in training around sexual assault. Because one of the things we know is that many sexual assaults not only involve that power differential, but also involve alcohol. About three-fourths of sexual assaults involve alcohol or other types of drugs. If that's not included in the training, that's not addressed, um, then you're missing a major piece, too, in terms of prevention. And survivor feedback extent possible include survivors, whether that be a, a video uh, from someone who's sharing their experiences. There's some great videos out there that the military uh, actually was with the Department of the Army have uh, from survivors who have come out and spoken about their experience. A male survivor, a female survivor. Um, and have someone who's there who's willing and able to share that as a part of the educational piece that might be helpful. But it would have to be someone who's at a place where they're ready to do so. Um, so maybe there are ways the military can include survivor voices in 
All right. Well, Terry, we are just about out of time. I I know 30-ish minutes is not exactly enough time to fully address the issue of sexual violence in the military, but is there anything that you would like to uh, throw in that you think that we've missed that's really important that we should hit before we wrap things up? Sure. I just want to conclude with this. Um, When I entered the Army, it was 1979. So again, I'm taking you way, way back here. And I was in uh, one of the first basic training units where men and women were integrated to train together. Big, really big change for the military to do that. Actually, the Marines still don't do that. But I was in the Army, and we did that. And that was before there was a sexual assault prevention and response program way before that, right? That happened in 2005. That was before uh, we really had an understanding of, of some of what happens when someone is sexually assaulted while they're on active duty. So we've had many years now, what is that, like, five decades, I don't even know, four decades uh, of looking at that. It was going on way before that. It's time for us to do something different and to, to really stand up and say, you know what, this is a public health issue for our military. This is affecting 20% of our military. We need to do something about this once and for all. And uh, no ifs, ands, or buts, top down, everyone's accountable. Terry, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you. Thank you again. This has been Prevention Is Now. I'm Deb Bonner, preventionist and community advocate for Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault. If you would like more information or have questions about this program, you may call our offices at 217-744-2560 or send me an email at dbonner at prairiecasa.org. Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault supports children and adult survivors of sexual violence through counseling and legal and medical advocacy in 11 central Illinois counties. Prairie Center offers coaching boys into men for male high school and college athletes, bringing in the bystander training for college campuses and sexual harassment prevention training for businesses and organizations in our area. Our main office is located in Springfield, Illinois, with satellite offices in Jacksonville and Taylorville, Illinois. And you can find out more about our services at our website at prairiecasa.org. This program is supported by a grant from the Illinois Department of Public Health and the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Points of view or opinions contained in this program are those of Prairie Center Against Sexual Assault and our guests and do not necessarily reflect the official positions or policies of these grantors. Thank you for listening.